Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Why Wasn't It Better. I am your host, Patrick Darms. And your co-host, Anton Paras. And we have our very first guest of the season, a return guest who listeners should be at least recently familiar with, Taylor Sherman's. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back, Taylor. Thanks, guys. just want to tell you right now I'm in a tin can recording, so my audio might be um, a little funky. Well, it sounds better than last time. Oh, really? Okay. I can tell you that. Well, the tin can this time is a little bit bigger than I was in. Oh, I don't know if that would inherently make it better or worse, but um, so far, so good. Taylor, welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you back. You've really been on here only a couple of episodes ago when you shared your, or I don't want to say you shared your love for Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, because Anton and I didn't love it. But well, you tried right. to defend it, you know. Very admirably. Yeah. You yeah. did a great job. Yeah, I think I succeeded. But um you're not gonna be defending this week's film, did are you? you? Wait, or I'm not gonna I'm not gonna skip that. Did you just say you felt like you succeeded? Yep. <laughs> I did. Huh. Real, rev- real revisionist history right there. But <laughs> Anton, well, you're crueler than I, because I was willing to let that go. <laughs> I, was, I was like, what? Well, we'll let listeners go back and watch the episode, listen and make their own decisions on what really happened (laughs) what really happened on why wasn't it better well but uh, just to reiterate i taylor i don't think you'll be defending this week's movie that is correct (laughs) that is definitely correct Hmm. Uh, there are defenders of the film that we're covering this week but i could not find any that were willing to come on the podcast everyone i contacted about prometheus which is the film that we're covering did not have necessarily great things to say about it. It's interesting to me at season three. I think it's 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 interesting that we're starting to dive into films where before folks were pretty open about joining the episode no matter what, but we're starting to really touch some films that have a lot of controversy. Either controversy or in the case of Exorcist 2, they were so hated that no one wanted to talk about them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, getting your name attached to anything with that feels cursed. If you haven't seen it, don't. It's not worth um, your time. There, you don't. You don't even have to say that to me. I, yeah. I know. I, I figured not. If you ever feel tempted, it's on Max. But I'm gonna go ahead and say it. Don't feel tempted. It's really bad. You know, I have to say, Max is a lot less desirable to talk about than HBO Max. HBO Max was much clearer, and I just feel like it was easier to say than Max. Like, oh, it's on Max. There's better brand recognition, too. When you actually say HBO, right? There's a lot of great quality with that. Home box office has just brought us so many wonderful things over the years. But before we start to dive in, maybe should we start with a little bit of admin, Pat? Yes, uh, we failed to bring this up on uh, last week's episode, which was the season premiere but uh, we have a lot of listeners and we are we're very grateful for them if you are a listener and you like what you hear and you have not subscribed or given us a follow please do we would very much appreciate it and if you are extra nice if you would be so kind as to give us a five-star review on spotify or or wherever you get your podcasts um, please do it's it, it means a lot to us we're still a pretty new podcast even though we're in our third season at this point and um, every positive review counts every subscription counts every follow counts so please yes absolutely and just to um, add to that if we were to get greater ratio of listens to follows it would just allow us to be able to really get more of our stuff out there and we really love all of the questions, all the engagement that we've had with you listeners, and we really appreciate and value each and every one of you. So 
thank you for all the support so far. And we continue to grow and continue to look forward to including everyone on that journey. And with that, I did want to offer it up to Taylor. Taylor, are there any plugs that you have that you want to drop for for today's admin? I do not. I just love being on the uh, podcast and talking with you guys. Uh, You don't have to say that. You'll get invited again. Well, you can say it if you want. Oh, but yes, please, please keep keep going. Well, let's just say that um, it was a struggle to watch this movie again, and that was uh, that was not a good thing. Okay, well, I'm glad we were able to give you that experience. It's time to talk about Prometheus. The discovery of a clue to mankind's origins on Earth leads a team of explorers to the darkest parts of the universe. Two seemingly brilliant young scientists lead the expedition. Elizabeth Shaw hopes that they will meet a race of benevolent, godlike beings who will in some way may verify her religious beliefs, while cut-rate Tom Hardy is out to debunk any (laughs) spiritual notions. However, neither the scientists nor their shipmates are prepared for the unimaginable terrors that await them. Prometheus was released on June 8, 2012 by Scott Free Productions, Brandywine Productions, Dune Entertainment, and 20th Century Fox. Directed by Ridley Scott, written by John Spates and Damon Lindelof. Starring Numi Rapace, Michael Fassmaster, Charlize Theron, Idris Elba, Cut Ray Tom Hardy, a.k.a. Logan Marshall Green, and Guy Pierce, a.k.a. Old Biff Tannen. The budget was $130 million. Adjusted for inflation, that's $173 million in today's money. And a box office return of $403 million, that is $538 million adjusted for inflation. Taylor, as you are this week's guest, why did you choose Prometheus as the episode to appear on? Now, I'm not, let's just say, I'm not like a huge fan of like the Alien series, but I have a very distinct memory of, of seeing this movie and hating it. I remember my friend wanted to see it with me really bad, and I don't know why he chose me because I, I had never shown interest in, in this kind of movie. And I remember seeing it in Union Square in New York and with my friend and his dad. After watching the movie, I was um, left um, with so many questions and disappointments. And, you know, I, I had no expectations going into this. And for some reason, I was disappointed at the end. So... Because of that experience, you had to end your friendship with that friend, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I I knew I knew you guys were gonna be talking about it, and I, I wanted to um, share my uh, my disdain towards it. Oh, we we never said we didn't like it. How do you know? Right. We there's a lot of assumptions there. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Well, let's just say this platform is to talk about the movie, and um, yes, that's true. My there my personal opinion is that I hate it. Yeah. A lot I mean, of people hate. I this mean, movie. I I hate it allegedly, <laughs> allegedly. Right. We don't release the um, the the grades until the end, right? Mm, that's a that's a rule we're pretty loose with. Yeah, it's a. There's a lot of uh, inferences that can be made. Yeah, okay. I won't keep the listeners in suspense. I found this movie very disappointing. I didn't like it allegedly, and confirmed. <laughs> It is a perfect choice for this podcast, mm-hmm. though. It, it really is. There was a tremendous amount of hype for this. Um, and it is spooky season, technically. And this is right. sort of a horror movie. Uh, maybe. Yeah, there's, there's some sci-fi body horror. There's some yeah. wolf men. Before we continue to dive in, I did want to just say, with the film being released in 2012, it's nuts how much it incre- uh, how much is adjusted for inflation. I'm a little surprised. And 
quite honestly worried about the rate of inflation. Yeah, no kidding. I almost didn't include the inflation numbers. And then I thought about it when I was making the notes. I was like, well, 2012 actually kind of was a while ago. Yeah, long enough. Like over, I mean, what, like over a decade, like 11 years. So, And also just speaking of the the box office uh, numbers, I mean, damn, that movie made a bunch of money. It did. It did pretty well. Yeah, Hmm. not bad. Enough that they made a sequel. Alien Covenant, mm-hmm. you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's got a sequel. Well, considering the film, we've already we we know it's a it's a good fit. I mean, oh yeah, is it? I mean, polarizing that comes to mind, right, Pat? Oh, very divisive film. This, you know, last season when we covered Alien Three, which we both, you know, Anton and I um, hated, and our guest <laughs> Paul kind um, hated it as well. Shout out to Paul. Shouts out to Paul, who hey, also Paul. hates this movie. He just wanted me to mention that. Uh, we said we weren't going to cover another Alien film for a while. Well, we lied. Or is it the truth? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> because, yeah, the uh, the gentleman who directed this film has gone out of his way to insist how much it's not an Alien film, which is confusing. It is part of the Alien franchise, and the Alien series is a beloved series to explore. It's an expansive film series. It's very fun to watch and discuss. You know, Ridley Scott, he obviously, he directed the original Alien, and him returning to the series here for this prequel, it was huge. I I remember being tremendously excited when I heard that he was going to be directing a prequel. But Anton, you're right. This is a very polarizing film. Probably one of, if not the most divisive film that we're covering on this podcast so far. It's equally worshipped and despised. If you ask someone what they think of it, you're going to get a whole bunch of different answers. It ended up with a 73% Rotten Tomato score, so pretty decent. Yeah, decent. And I'd like to think the defenders of this film, their favorite movie snack of choice are paint chips. So (laughs) I don't think highly of them. (laughs) I agree. I agree. Well, whatever you think of this film, I think we can all agree on one thing. Going back and watching the trailer for this, holy cow, this is one of the best movie trailers I have ever seen. It's a banger. So great. The marketing campaign featuring David, that's the character who's played by Michael Flashdancer. Pretty cool marketing campaign. I don't know if either of you saw that, but um, yeah, Michael Michael Flask Eater was in a lot of these um, promos online. No, that was, and I think that was what let, like part of, we, we've talked about hype a lot, and even for the film, just having Michael Schmashmender's voiceovers during the narration of the different trailers, the teasers, it, it helped build up that hype because it was a mystery of, and connection to the Alien franchise that, of course, really hyped it up for a lot of fans. For sure. Taylor, like you, I saw this opening weekend. Anton, I actually saw this with Tyler. Oh, very cool. You know, another... another um, Friend of the show. Yeah, another guest. But yeah, I saw it with him, and I left the theater pretty disappointed. I was, I was really impressed with the visuals, which is, you know, that's what you expect from a Ridley Scott movie. Awesome production design, really cool visual effects, great cinematography, and this movie has those things. But the story left me pretty disappointed. So I, w- I had only really seen it the one time. I might have seen it one other time, but it has, it's been a long time. And I didn't remember a ton about the movie. So I was really excited to revisit it for this episode. Here's a treat. We get to talk about it even more. Am I right? Definitely hey. a treat. I enjoyed doing the research for this. Anything to add before we get into the production history? The fact that it's called a horror movie. They're using the, the term horror pretty loosely here. 
Agreed. I would say I'd say it's more of a like a disaster movie, and that, that I think that's what makes. You Are know you what saying because I mean? the film's a disaster? <laughs> yeah, I mean we've all we've all seen it. Have you, have you seen the last uh, hour? I've seen both hours of this movie. I'm not going to say anything it. just yet. Right. What? Yeah. What? Before we start to really get into the fun fun parts. Let's take a look at the production history. If any of the listeners are interested in nerding out on this movie, there is a three-hour making-of documentary on the Blu-ray. It's really, really cool. And just like any of Ridley Scott's movies, the director's commentary that he provides for this is fascinating. He does not hold back. He gives tons of details. He explains how and why he does everything. He's one of the best director's commentaries to listen to. I would say him and James Cameron are, are my favorites that I've ever heard. And um, that, like I said, that goes for any Ridley Scott movie, even going back to the original Alien. He's done commentary tracks for, I think, all of his movies. So if you haven't heard any of his commentaries, definitely check it out. So the seed for this film's particular story goes back to the late 1980s. This is back when 20th Century Fox originally asked Ridley Scott to direct what would become Alien 3. And Scott rejected the proposed story idea. Anton, I mentioned this on the Alien 3 episode, how he, as Scott said that he was more interested in exploring the origin of the xenomorphs and the space jockey that we saw in the first film. So fast forward to 2002, Sigourney Weaver also expressed interest in returning to the series. James Cameron discussed the potential for a sequel with Ridley Scott, and the two of them actually began working on a story for the film. This is pretty cool. That's nuts. Yeah. But 20th Century Fox approached Cameron with a script that ended up being the 2004 film Alien vs. Predator. And when Fox informed Cameron that they were moving forward with this crossover idea, Cameron immediately ceased working on his project, and he said that Alien vs. Predator would, quote, kill the validity of the franchise, end quote. That's a very bold statement from Cameron. Um, yeah, I don't know that he's right. Yeah, I don't I don't know that he's right either. I feel like, I mean, but of course, James Cameron's a man known for having quite a, an opinion on things. Yeah. Have either of you played the Alien vs. Predator video would, games? On the Super Nintendo, released in 1993. Did you ever play the PC game from the early 2000s? There was, I think there were two of them. I don't remember the PC games, but I played the SNES version quite a bit. Just, it was a fun beat-em-up game. The PC games were really, really cool, and it had a pretty cool story, and you could play the whole game as a Predator, an alien, or a Marine. But back yeah. to the production of this. Let's so let this sink in. We could have gotten Alien 5 written and produced by James Cameron and directed by Ridley Scott. Both of them wanted to do it. And according to Cameron, they were in agreement about the story. But Fox chose to make Alien vs. Predator instead. Why? Oh, Why, so- Fox? Why would you do it? <laughs> Quick cash grab. Right. And that would be my guess. It would yeah. it would have felt like Alien vs. Predator with James Cameron versus Ridley Scott on set. But I will say, just looking at that and considering a, an Alien 5 film with those two at the helm... It felt like that scene in Predator with Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers going, Dylan, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Just I can I can see it vividly right now. What happened to you, Dylan? You used to be somebody I could trust. <laughs> oh, and it all comes full circle. With, it does. With Predator. <laughs> yeah. Who knows if that would have worked? I would have loved to have seen it, though. But it, it is an interesting what if, because by 2006, Cameron confirmed that he would 
never return to the series because it was Fox's asset. And by this point, it's it's important to, to remember that he was deeply involved in making Avatar. So, you know, who knows what would have actually happened, but that, man, that is such a tempting project to think about. By early 2009, after the two Alien vs. Predator films were poorly received, Fox confirmed that the series would be rebooted, and they actually officially hired Ridley Scott to direct it. Scott met with screenwriter John Spates in late 2009 to discuss the project. Spates pitched his story concept, which was a bridge that would connect the story of the film's human characters to the Alien saga, and he was hired. He completed his first draft in less than a month. Within 12 hours, Scott returned the script to him with notes, and he worked on the rewrites over Christmas. Scott's story concept was partially inspired by Chariots of the Gods, Eric Von Daniken's work about the theory of ancient astronauts, which hypothesizes that life on Earth was created by aliens. In June of 2010, after several additional drafts, Scott contacted Damon Lindelof of Lost Fame and asked him to review Spate's work. Lindelof was unaware of what Scott and the producers liked about the existing script, and he informed them that he found the general idea appealing, but the story relied too heavily on elements of the Alien films, such as the Alien creature's life cycle. Now, as a direct prequel to Alien, the story was shaped to lead into that film's story and to recreate the familiar cues of that series, and Scott wanted to avoid repeating his previous accomplishments. Lindelof said, quote, If the ending to Prometheus is just going to be the room that John Hurt walks into that's full of eggs in Alien, there's nothing interesting in that because we know where it's going to end. Good stories, you don't know where they're going to end, end quote. I don't know if he knew where this was going to end either. I disagree with that statement wholeheartedly. Wow. Like, good stories, you don't know where they're going to end. That's that's not, like, a good, perhaps maybe a good oh, movie. Oh, yeah. Like, well, I just, I just disagree with the sentiment. Well, also, if it's a, if any kind of a prequel to Alien, you know where it's going to end. If it's a prequel to a pre-existing movie, like, obviously you know where it's going to end up. Right, and it's, I think that's where the quality of the film, how can it capture the viewer's attention, really shows if it's a good movie or not. Not, yeah. not whether or not you already know how it's going to end. He did expand on this a little bit, saying, quote, a true prequel should essentially precede the events of the original film, but be about something entirely different, feature different characters, have an entirely different theme, although it takes place in the same world, end quote. Again, I don't really understand that. It should be about something entirely different. Well, then it's not a prequel. <laughs> that wouldn't yeah, be a prequel. I, I if really it's about gotta say, different. I, I'm I'm philosophically disagreeing with this Lindloff guy. Um, yeah. He's a he's yeah. a controversial writer. If you know anything about him, he's he's you know Lost is a very famous TV show. He also wrote The Leftovers. Yeah. So there's yeah. interesting. There's a lot of I can see like wanting to reject maybe treaded waters just to make sure that there's a bit of an artistic approach a novel artistic approach, but there's so many case studies where you can have very similar return to either treaded water before or even just like original themes and characters while still having a good time. We're not going to dive into it here, but I don't know. I don't really vibe with this. He spent approximately eight months developing the script, finishing in March 2011, just as filming was beginning. Spates was told by Scott what he wanted, then Lindelof was brought in to punch it up. At the end of the day, both of these people were hired by Ridley Scott to write a story for Ridley Scott. He approved it, and the film went into production. Hmm. Do you think yeah. that they told marketing? They told them something. I don't know what they told them, though. 
They're like, oh, Ridley, Ridley yeah. Scott's back for the Alien prequel. Oh, yeah, sweet. We'll, we'll make sure it feels like Alien. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, we'll you know, we'll get to it a little bit later in more detail. But like, this was this was certainly marketed as an Alien prequel. They really uh, amped that up. Yeah, I have some more uh, quotes from Lindelof that he that he gave to um, the Huffington Post in an interview. He said, quote, Ridley had bandied about the idea of revisiting the Alien universe, but he never really seriously considered it until about a year before I got involved. Then as the project came along with a writer named John Spates, Ridley got more and more passionate about this particular idea that was driving him. John rewrote several drafts for him, one of which was sent to me, dot, dot, dot. It was very clearly an Alien prequel. It had had all the Alien tropes that you and I would come to expect from eggs and face huggers and chest bursters and xenomorphs with acid for blood. And I said, I don't know why. Why you're sending it to me, but I'm going to take a run at what I think the movie is asking for and see if that's why they sent it to me. And I turned out to be right. Continued. That story was very much an evidence of John's draft, but it was surrounded by all this alien mess. So I said, what would happen if we stripped all that alien stuff away and we recalibrated the script? So it was more focused on this original idea. What would that look like? And Ridley said, I'd like to find out what that looks like. And I said, I'd be honored to help you do that. Continued. In a lot of ways, this is not my movie where I walked in and said, this is the story that I want to tell. This is the movie that Ridley wanted to make. And I just helped him by asking him questions and badgering him. End quote. Ridley Scott convinced Fox to invest millions of dollars to hire scientists and conceptual artists to develop a realistic version of the late 21st century. There was a heavy emphasis on practical effects. CGI was only used when absolutely necessary, and Scott avoided using green screens as much as possible. Nonetheless, the film still contains approximately 1,300 digital effects shots. Sidebar, the effects in this movie are incredible. They look really, really good. They hold up really well, and it's a great way to use CGI. With an estimated $130 million budget, principal photography began in March 2011 and wrapped up in October, taking place at Shepperton Studios and Anton. Where else? Pinewood Studios. That's right. So far, our favorite film studio on this podcast, including extensive use of the 007 stage. Location shooting took place in Iceland and the Wadi Rum Valley in Jordan. Scott said that he had a responsibility to Fox to be able to present a PG-13 cut of the film if the studio demanded it. But the film ended up with an R rating. And now, gentlemen, it is time to talk about why wasn't it better. Number one. The story. The story is is where this film received the majority of its criticism. Damon Lindelof, he took a lot of flack for this. And, you know, we we just touched on how we didn't agree with some of his his thoughts about this film. But I have to say, this is on Ridley Scott. This is Ridley Scott's baby. It's an alien prequel that they're trying to pass off as something else. But at the same time, they're relying heavily on the story elements that made Alien successful in the first place. Oh, my gosh. It's just it's so true. Right. It's very uh, ADD. It's there's he doesn't know what he wants. And um, I think he just put a lot of his random unedited ideas together. And that's why the making of documentary on the Blu-ray is so interesting, because they're very open about this. Right. They're not trying to hide the storytelling mashups that they essentially put into the finished product. Right. Based on what we know about the writing process. This is really two different story ideas that they just mashed together, right? You have Spate's screenplay, which was more of a traditional prequel to Alien, and then Lindelof's edits that Scott asked him to do, that steered things toward the engineers in this movie, 
and a much more standalone story. I don't know how well the, the two things gel together or why they decided to really mash these two things together. But again, this is what Ridley Scott wanted. I think that it should be classified as it's a standalone and I think the aspects of Alien are pretty much like cut and paste. There's no real tact. There's no real finesse to how they put in like the Alien no. related content at all. No. What it really seemed like to me was that Ridley Scott wanted to do some weird origin of life story, but he used the Alien prequel idea as like an excuse to get the budget for it. That's kind of what I suspect here. No, that's fair. But at the same time, it just it, it's just so crazy to think that, well, part of it, right, you have a lot of a lot of writers in the writing room putting together this story. And I feel like probably there was some conflicts in terms of how this story fit into the universe as a whole. So maybe there's a bit of waffling on that end. Yeah. And there's no greater example of this than I think um, than the concept of the black goo. The black goo is featured quite heavily in this film. It's never explained what it is or what the purpose of it is. It's a clear example of a, a you know, deus ex machina plot device. It's a contrivance, right? Nothing right. more. It can do whatever Ridley Scott wanted it to do just for the sake of the next scene. So, like, let's walk through it a little bit. In the beginning, the engineer drinks the black goo. It breaks down his DNA. It dissolves him into a river, and it, it, it looks like it's going to create life on a planet, right? And that planet, by the way, is not supposed to be Earth. I don't know if that was clear in the film, but that was not Earth. I learned that from the director's commentary. And then the black goo, worms get covered in it, and they become um, like bloodthirsty cobras. And then yes, a geologist so... gets his face in it and then becomes a murderous zombie creature from Resident Evil. So we, we, we know from, from that it accelerates growth. And does it? Tur- and, does but, it? But then it, but 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 then it also, it's the wonder, it's the wonder goo. It turns people into zombies, right? And people. then Holloway, you know, cut rate Tom Hardy because I just assumed they couldn't get Tom Hardy for this movie, so they hired discount Tom Hardy. So he drinks it because David, aka Michael Firebreather, spikes his drink with it, right? And then he impregnates an infertile woman with what turns out to be like a essentially space squid that's really a face hugger. And then he gets a worm in his eye, and then it's it looks like it's starting to turn him into a Resident Evil zombie. And then he asks Charlize Theron to kill him. So the black goo can do all of these things. Yeah, there's there's no way based on the descri- like what you just described to just know like how this goo works. I mean, it in that same sense, I wonder what I wonder what was going on in in Michael Airbender's mind when he dipped his finger in <laughs> to Holloway's drink like oh. I wonder I wonder if this will do anything. Oh, Anton, we got a whole section about Michael and Hill Eater. Well, Michael Smashmender <laughs> of course had quite the uh, performance as David, but like you said, we'll dive into that a bit more. But yes, very clearly, this is a lazy plot device, Deus Ex Machina to the core. Yeah, right. there's a and, there's and, a big difference between ambiguity and then just leaving something completely unexplained, which they do here. Well, also, goo goo is so it's such a general thing to use. Yeah, as well, you know. It's just so general. There's more Lindelof quotes you can look up. He had a lot of things to say about this movie, you know, in in the years since its release. The script contributions that he made, they do actually answer a lot of the mysteries and they do tie up a lot of the loose ends. But Ridley Scott chose to just cut them from the script. 
I've been fairly, uh, you know, objective so far, but like, I, I can't tell you how much I just hate the story of this movie. Wait, Some people really he... like the mystery of it. I just think it's lazy storytelling. They're asking question after question and deliberately choosing to answer none of them. Also, he, he goes against what he had just said, because I remember Idris Elba, closer to the end of the movie, he um, he literally says, I don't know if I have it quoted, but he just he talks to Shaw and he's like, oh, I think they're I think the goo is like a weapon. And this place is like uh, a military base and they're attacking they're yeah. going to attack Earth. There's no context from that. He just figures no. that out all on his own. Well, and that's the thing, right? That's why it's lazy. Us. Like the, the goo could be a weapon, but it could also be fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. Oh, do you need it to turn someone into a zombie? We can do that. Do you need it to turn a worm into a space cobra? We can do that too. Yeah. To, well, be, yeah. Fa- to be fair, Scott can have his principles as a director and the importance of showing but not telling. But then there's also studio interference of we need to ship something out. Just have Idris Elba say the lines. Exactly. Yeah. It's a really interesting concept, the black goo. and But they, to me, they just got caught in this halfway house. They're asking these big questions, but it's not a 2001 Space Odyssey type of film. It has horror elements in it, but it never goes full horror. I think maybe part of it was, you know, we, we kind of hinted a little bit of it. What was cut? What ended up at the cutting room floor? I wonder if there is maybe like a four-hour version of this film that makes a lot more sense. There is. There is a much longer cut that we just haven't seen. I just don't see how there, the extended cut would make this story better. Like, the pacing is okay, but it, it just it lashed onto the Alien franchise just to make money. My biggest problem with it is that the story, to me, feels like a pyramid scheme. It's like a tease. It's a bait-and-switch. There's no payoff to anything, right? All these questions get asked. None of them really get answered. And at the end, they're like, oh, yeah, we have to go to another planet. Right. And how is um, Michael Phone Charger like still alive in the end? Oh, with his head ripped um, off? With his head ripped off. Is he like a super robot? Like, Well, and- that happened in the other films. Right. Okay, okay. Which, of okay. course, this, this film doesn't shouldn't be connected to because it also has an android. But the end, the other film did too, but it's not that android. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not that. Um, I but mean, then you, yeah. yeah. It's pseudo-intellectual open- like nonsense to me is, is what I thought the story was. It did not seem like they understood the story that they wanted to tell. Right. And, and I just want to include uh, Michael uh, Ball opener again, just how he... <laughs> How like what what is the point? And I know this is answered in a in a later movie, but how, what is the point of him poisoning? Um, I think Charlie is his name. Cut Ray Tom Hardy. That, yes, Cut Ray Tom Hardy with the, with the black goo. You know, the, don't know. He he just he just stirs stuff up, and there was no there was no uh, like experiments conducted on him, and no you know, scientific the, method. Yeah, no. and the the the. The whole the end of that story is that uh, Charlize Theron burns him with a flamethrower, which looks cool, but it doesn't yeah. add any um, yeah. sort of substance to the story. This is how I have it articulated because I, I was try- I was so frustrated by what this movie was doing that I, I wrote it down like this: We see a planet that resembles LV four two six, but it's not that planet. We see a derelict ship, right? The spaceship that takes off at the end. It looks just like the alien ship from the, the first movie, but it's not that ship. We see the space jockey. 
but it's not that space jockey. There's the eggs. There's a big face hugger. There's a chest burster that looks a lot like the xenomorph, but it's not that xenomorph. They were making every effort to piggyback off of the alien movies, but they somehow thought it was a good decision not to connect this movie story. And they went out of their way to tell us, oh, no, 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 it's not really an alien movie. It's just idiotic. Think of it like this. Imagine if you saw a trailer for a movie that had a planet that looked like Tatooine. It had Star Destroyers in it. It had a Death Star in it. It had people fighting with lightsabers. But the producers of the film were like, oh, no, it's not a Star Wars movie, though. Cash and grab. It's, it's just, well, even if it is a cash grab, it just doesn't make sense. It's like you could have still included a connection to the xenomorphs really embrace that this is a traditional prequel and it's it could still be a cash grab doing it like this to me honestly just does not make any logical sense right and no. and there is a connection to the xenomorphs at the end right but like i had mentioned earlier it's just tacked on there's no there's no finesse added in it, it's just god it's so well now that's the thing there's also a there's a really blatant connection in the middle of the film that they never touch on again which i'll i'll, I'll get to a little bit well no i'll mention it here and then i'll, I'll get to it later because it, it's a discussion point but when they're in the black goo room remember there's the giant mural on the wall mm-hmm. that there's like yes. very clearly a xenomorph depicted on the mural mm-hmm. so it's like at some point in the past of this film story the engineers must have encountered the xenomorphs because they put it on this mural. But that's not really touched on or explored or elaborated on ever again, even in the sequel. In fact, the, the sequel contradicts it. Oh, boy. But, you, I mean, Anton, like, you touched, you, you, I think you nailed this. What is the point of doing all this if it's not going to connect the story to the first alien? This ends up being like a fifth wheel in a series that didn't need it. If you think about the two best movies in this series, right, Alien and Aliens, They're pretty simple movies with really straightforward plots. The first one's a monster movie set in space, basically a slasher movie. And then the second one is more of an action movie that has a little bit of a bigger setting. But the story that Prometheus is trying to tell, it doesn't tie in with this at all. And Taylor, you are right. It just, it would have worked much better as a standalone film. What we were talking about before, about what Ridley Scott had said about this movie, it just seems like he's contradicting himself every step of the way. He just doesn't know whether to make it a standalone or part of the like alien universe, and there's no way to like really classify it. Oh, he has some really interesting quotes about this film. He said in an interview, get this, <laughs> the reason that the engineers wanted to destroy Earth was because Jesus Christ was an engineer. Oh the engineers gosh. made man... Man went so bad, they sent an engineer to try and fix the problem. Man crucified the engineer, and apparently they didn't like this. This was featured in at least one draft of the screenplay. Uh, pretty smart decision on their part to not include that in the film. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense in like in the like no. religious canon either. No, of course not. No. Like ugh, The wow. other part of it, too, I don't, I don't know if this is necessarily a plot hole, but it's just an observation that I made when I was watching it the other night. So you know how they establish in the film that like um, the human's DNA is identical to that of the engineers? So they're like, well, all, all life on Earth must have come from the engineers. It's like, but what about all the animals that don't have the same DNA? Like, how does that work? How did they get here? There's a lot of questions around just... <laughs> Anton's like, I'm so, not touching that one. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's just what? <laughs> also, why did the engineers look like big babies? Well, I have a note about that. 
I can shed some light on that for you, Taylor. They're meant to look like a Greco-Roman? Yes. Uh, Ridley Scott wanted the engineers to resemble Greco-Roman gods, and he instructed the designer to reference the Statue of Liberty, Michelangelo's David, and Elvis Presley. (laughs) I mean, you you can see it. Um, I actually think it's pretty cool creature design. I, I don't. I well, it's okay. It, it's ins- it, it's very unsettling. Yeah, and I actually I thought it was effective. And I agree. I think it was because they stood very stoically, looked vaguely human, and but still very alien. That it made it very uncomfortable whenever they were on screen. So I think it was very effective in that sense. I think yeah. their whole, I think everything but their face, you know, did the job. And then I, I was like, <laughs> I think it sucks. <laughs> I see their face, and it's nothing more than just a big baby, big crybaby who wants to hurt humans. Ultimately, back to the story, nothing really happens in the movie if you think about it. They go to a planet mm-hmm. for answers. They pretty much all get killed. None of their questions get answered. The only wrinkle in the story is Michael Basenecker's character, David. Yeah, it, it's just so frustrating to think about how if this movie tries to pose itself as an intellectual film, there are so many films that have shown you can take a lot of concepts that are a lot smarter than this film and the the concepts can be questions about morals question about the origins of man questions about very complex things and the bet the the good films that are separated from the bad films are they don't just ask the questions and left and left them feel unanswered this is a film that just chooses not to answer those questions but just throw them out there and then say hey yeah, this is intellectual. It all hinges on the ending, for which there's no payoff. There's not really any answers. There's kind of like a loose, like, tune in next time type of feel to it. It sort of feels like the first episode of, like, a miniseries, in a way. That's kind of the vibe I got from it, where, like, they're, they were really setting things up for what would have taken place in a sequel. But as as you know, Anton, the sequel doesn't really conclude a lot of the things in here it does it off screen and in a very like nonchalant way it creates more problems pretty much yeah michael glass eater is in it but he plays two different characters and and i don't i don't even want to talk about alien covenant right now would you guys like to hear some critical quotes about this film go for it yeah so this is all related to the story right so nick pinkerton of the village voice said in his review quote the same sense of build-up toward a payoff that never arrives are we supposed to placidly await a sequel defines prometheus this feels like deliberate open ending than an inability to control tone and effect end quote and emmanuel levy said quote it's not only uneven but it promises more original ideas and thematic provocations than it can possibly deliver end quote and what did james cameron think quote interesting i thought it was an interesting film i thought it was thought-provoking and beautifully visually mounted but at the end of the day it didn't add up logically end quote okay Hmm. yeah seems logical yeah is it an alien movie the filmmakers would tell you it's not is it a horror movie no it's not scary enough is it some kind of Kubrickian look at humanity? I think it wants to be, but it doesn't begin to answer it. It's a bunch of people acting stupidly, and almost nothing happens. And that brings us to the second reason why it wasn't better, which is the plot. This has been widely circulated on the internet. It's worth mentioning just how glaringly similar this film's plot is to that of the 2004 film Alien vs. Predator. I just wanted to check real quick. Have either of you seen Alien vs. Predator? Oh, yeah. On TV a couple times, yeah. Yeah. in and out. It's not very good. 
Yeah, there. I uh, just want to give a, a scene shout out to Alien versus Predator, where the old rich guy is approached by the Predator. Predator sees that he has a bad heart and is like, eh, you're not worth it. And then the old rich guy takes him out. So yeah, that's about it. Well, there's a pretty good mm. list on avpcentral.com that examines the similarities between the two films plots. In the interest of time, I'm not going to go through the details of all of them, but I will list all of the general similarities. Mm -hmm. Number one, the mission. Number two, the excavation. Number three, Earth's hidden past. Number four, the team of scientists, right? Number Mm -hmm. five, the protagonist. There's a strong-willed young woman who's a scientist who's in a romantic relationship with another scientist. Number six, both films feature old man Wayland. You mean Biff? Yeah, old man Biff, because, uh, yeah, Wayland in this movie looks like um, old man Biff Tannen from Back to the Future Part 2. Yeah, Hilarious. How, how, did they, how did they do so well with the visuals and then blow it with the makeup? No clue. Uh, number seven, there's a temple. Um, number eight, characters get lost in the temple. Number nine, there's a storm that characters get clawed, caught in. The climax is very similar for number 10. Number 11, there's a final baddie. There's like one bad guy left. Number 12, there's a final survivor. And number 13, chest bursting of a new type of alien. These similarities are more than a passing coincidence. It's straight jacked. I'm amazed there wasn't a lawsuit. And I think the only reason there wasn't is probably because both films were made by the same studio. Ridley Scott claims he's never seen the Alien vs. Predator movie. I, I don't know if I believe that. Because Anton, you've seen it. You, you know, you remember enough about it. Like, there's a lot of similarities here. Especially when you lay it out like that, like it's all coming back to me and I'm like, that yeah. is a little weird. Yeah. Now, Prometheus, I was going to say it's probably the better film. I don't know that it is. As dumb as Alien versus Predator was, at least it at least knew what it was. It's just popcorn entertainment. This is far more pretentious. I don't know. 100%. No, I, I agree. It, it's it's why like it, it feels like this film is even more of a disappointment than Alien versus Predator just because it tries to really push itself as like a very almost art house science fiction intellectual film. Yeah. But it really isn't. Right. Let's talk about the plot itself. There's a bunch of holes in it. The crew doesn't know each other. They don't know what the mission is. They they're, they're going on a minimum four year trillion dollar mission to an uncharted planet. They don't know what the plan is. They don't know why they're there. They don't even have a basic idea of what they're going for. It's not a plot hole, but it's, it's idiotic. And then during the initial briefing, which is given by um, Elizabeth Shaw and cut rate Tom Hardy. Uh, so I don't remember the character's name, but Redbeard, you know, the geologist who um, is in charge of making the maps who later gets lost in the um, yep. cave, whatever system chip thing. So he asks Shaw what they're doing here. Right. And he's like, wait a minute. So we're going all the way out to this planet because of a map you two kids found in a cave. And she says, it's not a map. It's an invitation. She offers zero evidence to support this theory. And then when when she's obviously like rightly asked about how she knows all this, the only answer she gives is, I don't know, but it's what I choose to believe. Also, what the why hell kind is, of scientist is she? Why why is everyone doubting like the people that are leading this too? Like Because they don't even what? know. I would doubt them yeah. too. I'd be like, wait a minute. So you don't actually have any evidence to support this theory. It's just what you believe. That's it? I would That's doubt the ambiguity. them too. That's the ambiguity um, Ridley Scott was going for. It's it's a very just like good. stupid. It, it's very stupid, right? Because it starts to ask the like already the movie has treaded on these questions of creation, 
And then you have a character, a scientist character that says, we just have to have faith. And it's almost like if someone reached into a bag and found like, the, these are interesting topics. Just make sure to throw it in the plot and that people talk about it, but never really address it well and never really actually have it develop into anything or explain anything in the universe but make sure faith is important and make sure that they talk a lot about science yes make sure she's wearing a cross because we need her to be religious because it'll make her a more of a compelling character deep character deep and it and it just doesn't make sense we call them engineers and then he asks her why she's like they engineered us no explanations given (laughs) so she makes this ridiculous leap from cave paintings to we have found the origin of all life on earth What I choose to to believe, Taylor, that is not science. That's not even logic. Well, to to the movie's credit, the time between the cave paintings and the voyage was like a couple years. I think like three or four years. So they could have discovered a lot more between that time. They could have, but we don't know. It's never elaborated on. It's Ridley Scott's ambiguity he wants us to uh, experience. Well, he sure gave us that, didn't he? (laughs) He gave us a lot of that. All right, it's time to talk about the black goo room again. Do you guys recall there's a bunch of shots of that green crystal? Yep, a lot of Mm -hmm. the hues, yeah. The camera focuses on it a couple different times, so like it's implied to be important, but they don't explain that. Um, we mentioned Ooh, how the right. the mural depicts a xenomorph that's also never explained. Um, I could barely see the mural actually. I didn't even realize it was. Yeah, if you freeze frame it, it's like, there's a very clear depiction of a, of a xenomorph on it, right in the center, and. It's funny because I remember in that exploration scene too, the engineers did develop a, a nest cam that recorded their actions that was able right. to give some exposition to the exploration crew. Right. So the team is all allegedly scientists, right? Are we in agreement on that? Right. Allegedly. Right. Um, they're, they're jerks. I can affirm you with that. Yes, they sure are. So none of them besides Michael Barnburner thinks to maybe put the black goo under a microscope or analyze it in any way whatsoever but they do take a fossilized alien head back to the ship but not the black goo that they find the scene that really got to me was they land on earth or sorry they land on the planet and then they're like oh it's good just take off your helmet oh yeah yeah uh, i mean and it's like but then they're still following like protocols for um uh, for, for any exposure to alien life Right. So um, they they decide to like go exploring when there's like six. I mean, six hours is a decent amount of time, but still, when darkness is like upon them, and then how do they not see the storm coming? I think they're idiots. I think they That's, might all be stupid. Well, they should have consulted with Michael Airbender. That's true. Yeah, he would have known. He seems to know a lot. He doesn't. He's not telling them everything. He's and walking then, Chat GPT. So I didn't right. realize this until the rewatch. So a, a lot of fo- a lot of online discussion is around the black goo, right? But what's up with the green goo that they f- that um that Michael Firestarter finds outside of the room? He kind of like picks it up and he he's like he's like looking at it on his glove and he's like fascinating. But they don't ever go into that again. It's never mentioned again. Good call but, out and yeah. just a question. It's literally just a question. That's it. Yep. Yep. And I'm I'm racking my brain over what it could be, and I have no theory at all. Maybe the goo is green outside of that room. I don't know. It wasn't in the canisters, though. It was like on the wall where he was opening. You know how when he opens the door, he goes up on the ladder. I don't know where he got the ladder from, but he goes up mm-hmm. on the ladder and opens the door to like the vault. And that's where the green right. goo is, I think. 
whatever. So they have a computer on the Prometheus that tracks the movements of everyone, right? Right. And it works pretty well. It looks like it's high def. You can see everyone's heartbeat. And they show this particular special effect in detail several times through through the film, right? It's like this 3D hologram. It's pretty cool. Um, they, none of them notice that Redbeard and the guy with the glasses, the biologist, get lost. They, none of them notice this. <laughs> this is just like bad horror movie trope crap. It's it's bad because they had all the tools to be able to catch it. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. And there's no calm between all the teams whatsoever from yeah i think what's what's interesting for me and i even think about it more the crew knew that david was an android that shouldn't have been a surprise right and still with having a being of intelligence that was almost like their shepherd into like exploring like a new planet in existence they didn't really consult with david too much like i feel like there could have been way more of just like you like leveraging like that very key resource and i feel like that was a an opportunity yeah they didn't really seem to have a plan like remember when they're about to go on the expedition and cut rate tom hardy he's like hey you uh robot he's like you you come with us and he was like i'd be delighted it's like who was supposed to go because a bunch of them just stay on the ship well apparently the uh geologists and biologists anyone can go or leave you know right um, they also no they hired protocol. the geologist to make the maps for, I don't know, whatever. Wouldn't you make one a cartographer to do yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. His robots were cool, though. Oh, the pups? Yeah, the pups. Yeah, that was that was oh. a cool uh, visual effect. Oh, yeah, and I- there's the stupid howling when he like releases those pups. Ugh, cringy. He might be the dumbest character in the movie, although Cut Ray Tom Hardy gives him a real run for his money. Yeah, they're we both infuriating. We didn't, um, I mean, I know we've been talking about everyone general, like specifically, but generally every single one of the people on that ship, maybe except for the pilots, I think there's three of them, mm-hmm. um, everyone sucks and is stupid and I oh, hate we them. We have an entire section and, to talk about them. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. What do you guys think? They don't seem that blown away that they found alien life. So I'm wondering, like, has, has humanity encountered aliens before in this film's story? They, th- they treat it like a big deal, but they don't really document anything. I'm just assuming this isn't the first sign of extraterrestrial life they've come across, but it's, it's not clear. I feel like that was just a poor way of showing how these folks would interact with, like, new, hum- or with new life or with extraterrestrial life. One could assume if you have technology this advanced and that you can visit other planets that they should have found something. Right. I want to disagree with you guys and say that I'm actually, I think they were like more shocked and blown away that they found alien life than they should have been because one, they're scientists, so they should expect something like this. Two, they had already, when they were landing the ship, they had already discovered the, you know, the military base that was created so why would they assume like nothing uh, they didn't know it was that? a military base i mean okay point. it's a it's a it's a structure made it's like yeah. it's not naturally made you know what i mean yeah. why they don't they, seem like, that blown some... away by it though they're like god doesn't right. make straight lines that's hmm. true that's actually true but i think there were some moments where they were like truly shocked and like it, it just didn't fit the bill as in like it wasn't consistent and i think that's where the the nails on the head there's a lack of consistency a lot of actions being taken in the film aren't consistent with logic 
No. I mean, breathable air on a uh, nitrogen-filled planet. Okay. No, nitrogen, uh, like, be- breathable air on a nitrogen-filled planet. Like, that's, it doesn't really track. But there's a lot of just, I think it's just a lot of interactions and the way that the universe is explored that just isn't really explained very well. And what a scene that really just shows a lot of unawareness of how humans actually interact than everyone's favorite C-section scene. Pat, do you agree? It's a pretty important scene. <laughs> important in terms of what? The whole story. But was it necessary? No, and this is the this is the biggest problem with it. It's this incredible event that happens to her, right? She has this what turns out to be a a face hugger. We don't know that at the time, but it turns out to be one. So it's cut she has it cut out of her, right? Immediately after the scene, she stumbles into a room with other characters. Nobody reacts when she walks in on an old man Biff being there. She's half naked. She's covered in alien goo. There's a huge scar on her stomach. No one asks her what happened. She doesn't bother telling anyone what happened. She doesn't tell anyone that she just cut out an alien octopus monster out of her. She does not tell a single person. This is some of the worst writing I've ever seen in a movie. Before she even did that, she escaped like the, the quarantine room or something. And there had to have been more than two people like, watching this and and noticing that she had escaped yet no one decided to chase her or anything right they were going to put her in in cryostasis it's like it's like the characters are in completely different movies is correct me if i'm wrong isn't this happening at the same time when redbeard zombie shows up and starts killing people yes exactly and that was quite a scene of itself. Right. Well, here's the question about that. So we, we assumed that the black goo turned him into a zombie, right? That right. Fair assumption. But if you go back and watch the scene, this is when the, um, the dumbass biologist gets killed by the snake thing. So the red beard guy, he gets his helmet melted from the acid blood. I don't know that he gets black goo on him. It's not really shown what's happened to him. He just kind of shows up later as a Resident Evil zombie. Well, part of it is once you're exposed to an area with a lot of the boo- uh, the goo urns, once it's in the environment, you could assume that it somehow changes DNA. That's true. Yeah. So, like, who, so who would know? But who would know? Again, this is just an assumption because they did such a great job of showing and not telling. And then the big question about the plot, right? This is this is probably the question that I, I would imagine most people want to know. For what reason was cut rate Tom Hardy infected? Did old man Biff Tannen tell Michael Backbreaker to do it? Or did Michael Backbreaker do it on his own? And if so, why did Michael Beachbummer decide to infect cut rate Tom Hardy? Okay. Like he's a key member of the mission, right? He's one of the only like uh, allegedly intelligent scientists on it. Couldn't you pick a more expendable crew member? It's just not clear. I don't mind ambiguity as long as you get the payoff of why there's ambiguity, but we never get the payoff. It's it's just unresolved. Unresolved. That's all I can say. One observation I had, you know, the suit that when he ends up trying to fly the ship and it turns into the space jockey that you see right. in Alien. Mm-hmm. So they're implying it's the same thing that you see on the derelict ship in Alien, right? But if you go back and watch Alien, there's bones and skulls and teeth. That's not a suit in the original Alien. So like, is this supposed to be the same thing? It's, it's again not clear. Again, this is the part of Prometheus that is just so frustrating and so infuriating. Why introduce the engineer this revealing of what the um, of, of what it should be 
and like in connection to the original alien series that just makes it feel like a bit more hollow, like a, just a strange reveal. Like it, it feels like the film, it feels like alien, but it's not, but it's not alien. Like no. you said, Pat and the way that they even construe it even further and confuse it even further in the sequel film is it's that there suddenly one can assume that there is no planet where there is like an alien dominant species as the xenomorphs as we know them were actually bioengineered by by david and if one's going to assume that then even the way that the ship was found in the first alien film with all of the eggs on the ship how would that have even happened if an engineer was never near if if there was somehow like also by the way there was a there was a huge like genocide of engineers in in covenant so it again doesn't make any sense no and then maybe the most pivotal scene in the whole film when david wakes up the engineer what does he say to the engineer that causes the engineer to go berserk and start killing them never explain he said he says, hey, um, can you take off my head and then kill everyone else? Yeah, it would really help me complete my mission. Um, have you have either <laughs> of you Googled this? Because you can Google it and find this out. What is, what's, what's the top uh, rated answer? Okay, so in the original script, it's a two-minute conversation between the engineer, old man Biff Tannen, a.k.a. Wayland, and Michael Fasttalker, a.k.a. David. So David translates, he fully explains why the engineers created life on Earth, and he also explains why this particular, particular it, it also explains why this particular engineer woke up and chose violence. Wayland wants to live forever, which we know, and he says that because he created David, he considers himself equal to the engineers, and he thinks he deserves to live forever like a god. This pisses off the engineer, and it explains why he goes all red rum on them but they cut that from the film for whatever inexplicable reason. So they made a movie about the origins of the alien story, and then they cut the explanation from the movie that is basically for the reason for the movie existing in the first place. But even with the explanation, it, it's, it's so shallow. And, and why would like a smart engineer like who created humans turn to violence so fast? Right? Like hubris, hubris was the reason? Like it's just... Even knowing that, like, a part of me is like, oh, that makes much more sense. But I'm just, I feel the same way. I, I just feel, like, shallow. Dis- disappointed. Yeah, very disappointing. And, you know, just like uh, our our former guest said, none of this was necessary for the Alien universe. It, it, it doesn't enhance the original movie Alien at all. In fact, it kind of makes it worse. In right. A way. The last reason why this wasn't better... Taylor, this is going to be your favorite. Uh, the dumb mm-hmm. characters. The movie oh, was the, dumb. It oh, was smart wow. people doing dumb things. They find aliens via a cave painting that from thousands of years ago. There's a difference between bad decisions and just plain, plain stupid. There, I didn't. I didn't even think there were, it was smart people being dumb. I thought it was dumb people being dumb. Allegedly smart. Allegedly smart. There you yeah. go. They had doctorates or something. You could probably argue that. I mean, there's a ton of unnecessary characters. Seventeen crew members on the ship seemed yep. more, more like thirty or forty. You, did, I mean, there was characters left and right coming coming out of every. I, I had to look ship. up how all, how some of them died because a lot of them died real quick, and it's not clear. So that zombie dude, he kills five people. The engineer kills another five. So that's ten of them right there. 
which is, you know, okay. it's not that clear in the film, but. So that's 10 plus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have to go okay. through all through it, but the, the point is they are, they act so stupidly and they all fall into the classic like horror movies tropes. Like they might as well be the teenage counselors from like Camp Crystal Lake with like all the stumbling around they're doing. They land um, on the planet. They immediately find this alien structure and they go inside and they, they all act like they're in the horror movie, right? The mapping expert gets lost. The biologist is afraid of a dead alien, <laughs> but then when he's confronted with a, a obviously hostile alien cobra, he sweet talks it and tries to pet it and then it kills him. Every character is the worst like version of themselves and I hated every character in the beginning. I hated I was I hated actively every rooting character. for them all to die. I could not wait. I was like, oh man, I can't wait for Redbeard to just die. <laughs> so I'm curious, do you guys think that this was a purposeful decision by the writers and Ridley Scott, or was this something that maybe the studio interfered and said, hey, we need this to feel more like a horror film. Can you throw in some of our usual tropes? Great question. And I think, actually, I think it's a little of both. I think Ridley Scott yeah. had, like we talked about this earlier, hubris. He had hubris and and I think he was like, oh, this is a horror film, so I'm confident that I can make these characters fall into the horror type of role, but still make the movie decent, and he failed. I can see the conversations. Like, you know what the, you know, it's a really popular <laughs> show right now? The Walking Dead. People love zombies. Let's make one of the characters turn into a zombie. That's more of an Australian accent. I realize that. but um, And Ridley Scott's <laughs> no. not Australian. But but I, I see where you're coming from, and I could see the studio being like, yeah, sure, yeah. whatever. Just make sure it ships out before Christmas. Yeah. This is not so much a character problem. Actually, it is. I just it just it annoys is, me. Why is old man Biff Peter Whalen need to stow away on his own ship? He owns the ship. He's funding the expedition. <laughs> they all think he's dead. Why is he pretending to be dead? Why is Charlize Theron needs to be his daughter? It adds nothing to the story whatsoever. You remember when she's talking to him? They treat it like it's this groundbreaking revelation. She's like, "Father." Great points, and there's no other. There's no reason why he couldn't have been on the ship. I mean, it probably would have given everyone more ambition to complete the mission too if he was there. Charlize it, Theron didn't have to be his daughter. Nope. To be even on the ship or for him to be on the ship. It made no consequence to the film at all. Charlize Theron didn't even need to be in the movie at all. Her character is completely right. pointless. You could cut her from every single scene she's in and the movie would not be different in the slightest. But then who would Idris Elba bang? Right. And then who would get run over by the, the ship at the end when they could just run sideways? Well, they those a, were they two got important parts. They got a serpentine. 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 Back to uh, Old Man Wayland real quick. Guy Pierce is a B-list actor to begin with. I don't like him. And he is appropriating roles from actual old people actors. I won't stand for it. <laughs> oh, yes. He took, he took a role away from what could have been Anthony Hopkins or Jonathan Price Ooh. or some other old okay. person. Any old person, honestly. Any old person. And, yeah. and this is a stand for all old actors out there. We got your backs. Anton, this would have been a perfect role for the Supreme Court Justice from the Pelican Brief if he was still alive at this point, which he was not. No, that's He was right. long dead at that point. Or they could have gotten the, the Yoda puppet to play uh, Wayland. That would have made more sense. Because this guy, he, guy Pierce's makeup looks like a puppet. It's hilarious. Yeah, uh, that, that, that was rough to see even in the little over a decade ago. Even I mean, have so, you guys... Have you guys ever seen I Think You Should Leave? 
No. Yeah, he the looks like show? he looks like the character that right. uh, that Tim, Tim Robinson, Robinson yeah, puts exactly. the the costume on. Yeah, he does. He does. That's hilarious. I actually, I have that image in my head now. That's amazing. <laughs> he he just reminded me of a bunch of different like stereotypical things, like Johnny Knoxville and Jackass as the old man. Oh yeah, yep. but that even that was actually much better. Oh yeah, by, yeah. by the Dirty Grandpa film, which funny enough got nominated for Academy Award for makeup. There you go. We haven't even talked about the main character played by Numi Rapace, Elizabeth Shaw. Well, we kind of talked about her, but don't I don't find her to be a particularly interesting protagonist. I don't no, think it's her fault. I don't think she was given a lot to work with in terms of the script, but it she's also a like dumb she character. Was, she also seemed like she it was like she wasn't independent enough and she was like secondhand to cut rate Tom Hardy who kind of just flail at the end. I also don't know why she thought she could still trust Michael Mann member at the end of the film to fly off with him to the engineer's yes. planet. That makes no right. sense. I know yeah, I noticed that too in the rewatch. She it, I think the film implies that she suspects him. There's a couple different shots of her like looking at him where it's implying she doesn't trust him. And you know, his duplicity is not he's not concealing it that much. Like when he's telling her how she's pregnant and he's like the fetus is very unusual. He's he's acting very shady towards her. And she just yeah, she chooses to trust him at the end and she owns and she apparently just wants to go to the home planet of the aliens who she learns wanted to kill humans yeah, yeah. M- michael uh fender bender really does not hide <laughs> his intentions and i don't know if this was on purpose but um michael lap dancer did a <laughs> did like a, a decent like yeah oh. he, um, he did he did like a uh a decent job yeah he played it, like yeah. a good robot but but let yeah. me just say this it always looked like he was it, like honestly his like his face movements and stuff looked like he was conniving all the time it wasn't like neutral at all and um he it was like there was this slight smile all the time and like obviously based on his actions that slight smile gave a lot away feeling like he was like always up to no good but he should have been just like a neutral robot but he wasn't yeah i have a question for you guys considering the film or considering the david character do you think the overall is that an iconic character now in like film history? Not to me. I didn't even remember he was in the movie until not I at saw all. It again. No, no, like uh, that's a hard no. Yeah, and and not to say that like you know I'm putting out there I'm like trying to advocate for that, but I do think that there was probably very purposefully like especially when you think about the marketing for um the different trailers, the narrating by um. Michael Cram uh, Flengler, um, <laughs> that there really was a push for this character to be much more iconic and to be very front and center. And it's a very unique character, but there was just enough that was a little confusing and just not quite there that this was a huge miss of what could have been actually a very iconic character. There's I, a lot of... Go ahead, Pat. I just realized there really isn't a main character. It's kind of David. But it's not really. It's kind of Chucky right. Holloway, but it's not really him. It's not really, <laughs> what's her name, Shaw. There's not really a main character. The most famous actor in the movie is Charlize Theron, but she's not really the main character either. You hit the nail on the head. Like, who is the antagonist and who is the protagonist? Like, there are clearly like some in-betweens and there's no clear-cut stuff. And even if we could argue that the, the antagonist was 
the engineer were the engineers and what who's the what's the offspring of Shaw? What are they called? Face suckers? Well, it's it's not a traditional face hugger. It's like a face hugger. Uh, it's a it's yeah, whatever. Regardless, like they these these people as antagonists, the engineers, they were introduced way late in the movie, you know, for them to be yeah. considered like a, like a main antagonist and like David could be an antagonist, but he's just so I mean, he's just he he's a chaotic chaotic neutral i don't i I think or chaotic evil i don't know something just stirs the pot but again we're not sure and then cut ray tom hardy he's just a complete loser he he goes on this four-year mission and he doesn't get what he wants within a couple hours he starts whining he gets drunk about not being able to talk to aliens right like that that was like just they they made it like a huge discovery and they go back to the ship and then he's like wasted he's like he's like i can't believe it it's just another tomb horrible (laughs) Like, does not pass as a credible scientist in, in the slightest. Speaking of the dumb characters, something I noticed about uh, Charlize's character, her name's Vickers. So she mentions <laughs> how she's on the mission because she wants to inherit the company from her father, right? Right. And she's like, I didn't want to sit for years in a boardroom arguing about who had control over the company. I have an idea for her. If your hundred and whatever year old father is going on a minimum four-year expedition to a faraway planet, and he's already dying. It's like you can probably take over the company pretty easily while he's gone. Mm-hmm. Just an idea. She also drinks straight vodka, which is strange. She's like vodka up. Okay, Yeesh. that's the best you got. Like you said, everything all together, just a very useless character. Doesn't do anything. She doesn't even go- think about it. On the very first expedition where they leave the ship, she's the most famous actor in the movie, and she just stays in the ship. Doesn't do anything. <laughs> Right, and she and there's another like plot like hole here. And it's not large, but it's also just pointless for them to like add this. But she she had like made herself stern to the scientist. She's like, "You will not interact with anything. You will report back to me." But like during the whole like exploration, they had like comms and cameras that could directly report back to Charlize Theron. <laughs> Right. Like while they were like exploring everything. So there was no reason for her to say any of that. No. Uh, No. The rest of the characters, they just exist to die. I guess Idris Elba would be the only one with some kind of a personality. He likes to play the harmonica. I like how gung ho he is to die with the other two pilots. They're like, guess we all got to die. And they're like, wahoo. (laughs) This place, don't you know what this place is? It's a military installation. It's like, uh, how'd you figure that out? That was so funny. Yeah, and yeah. he he basically explained everything that was missing, and it was just that's that. Do we For, need to talk he... about Michael Solar Sailor anymore? I think my, uh, you know what? I think Michael Goldmember is just had had all the elements to be an iconic character in principle, but ended up just being kind of an annoying android. Yeah, I don't think he's an interesting character at all. I do like Michael Bestseller as an actor. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I love, love. I actually really do love him as Magneto. Oh yeah, I liked him in um, in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, that I was like that his was breakout favorite. role, right? I think, right? Yeah, Something but like that. sure. I think not? it might have been. But anyway, he was. I, I don't know. I'm, I have mixed feelings about him. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to like. I've seen online a lot of people do 
like Michael Cord Ripper uh, as David. And part yeah. of it is because the character is mysterious, right? And there's a lot of questions about what are the true intentions of this android? What is he doing? Why is he seemingly just undermining everything that the scientists are doing? And like, honestly, I, I'd find that more fascinating if everything that he was doing wasn't just so damn stupid. Like, ooh, I wonder what happens when I dip my finger with a goo in this guy's drink. This will be fun. It, right. Is no he really an interesting it. character or is everything? Every other character horribly uninteresting and dumb. Little column A, little column B, in my opinion. (laughs) Well, I'm trying to think about other than um, Michael Bookburner, what's like a, uh, what's another like humanoid robot that was like interesting in another movie? Bishop? Yeah. From Aliens? Yeah, Bishop from Aliens. (laughs) Yeah. And then who's uh, Ian Holmes? What was his name? Ash? Ash, The first one? Yeah. Well, his character was cool because you didn't know he was an android until you knew. Right. And even that actually makes it a lot more interesting. Oh, Um, yeah. But yeah, he's not he's not the greatest. I mean, you mentioned one of the all time great AIs, Hal. Right. And that's I think he was trying to be Hal. And they were trying to make it seem like he was like he was causing ruckus for the good of the whatever the mission was. We don't even know. It was just exploration. Oh, I got a good one for you. Haley Joel Osment and AI artificial intelligence. Oh, 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 I I I got another. I got another. Yeah. Robin Williams and Bicentennial Man. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Oh, man, that's a terrible movie. That's a deep cut right there. That is a deep cut. Should oh, we technically man. do that movie on the podcast? Does that count? Yeah. No. no. This, I, I think this deserves a, a YouTube short naming famous androids. <laughs> um, well, you got all the all the folks in Blade Runner, like Rudger Hauer, he was pretty interesting. Right. Very, in- oh yeah, um, Tears in the Rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that was a cool what's, character. Uh, what's the robot in Interstellar? He wasn't even, he wasn't like, he was human-esque, but like, he wasn't built like a human, but that reminds me of David. I don't have anything else to add about these just like, just moronic characters. I, I was so glad all of them died. They, they should have oh, died yeah. sooner because the movie would have been over sooner. I mean, they were. I feel like they were. They were there for absolutely no substance, just as no. bodies to mutilate. Okay, and then can we actually? Can I name one actual uh, AI that is particularly iconic and does a great job of sh- of making sure you're asking the question of what qualifies as like existence and humanity? Yeah, Data from Star Trek. Oh, he's he's the best one. Exactly. That's it. That, that's it, Anton. That's the answer. I'm kind of embarrassed I didn't think of that myself. But yeah, that's the answer. Yeah, there we go. There you go. All right, we have our answer. Or 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 Data's brother, Lore. <laughs> right, exactly. Ooh, there you go. Okay, let's wrap this up. Uh, it's time to talk about whether or not we liked it and give our verdict. Taylor, as you are the guest, would you like to go first? I would, I would. So after talking about this movie, I actually hate it even more than I originally did. And there is nothing redeemable other than the visual effects, which were inconsistent. The only like redeeming quality of this was I had seen it and I distinctly remember watching it. And for some reason that like holds in my memory and nostalgia makes me feel good and stuff. But I still hate it and I'm going to give it a D minus. Very fair. Mm-hmm. I will go next. I still think Ridley Scott is one of the champions of world building. Cinematography, production design, visual effects, they are very, very good here. This film is very nice to look at. 
it's a textbook example of how to effectively use CGI in a modern film. This is an appropriate use of CGI. Prometheus is a technical triumph. The expectation of this, whether or not it was their intention or not, was that this would be a prequel to Alien, when in reality it, it, it pretty much is not that. I don't know what this film is. They really couldn't seem to decide if they wanted to make a horror version of 2001, A Space Odyssey, or an actual prequel to Alien. It doesn't work well as a prequel to Alien. I don't think it works well as a standalone film. The story is pretty ambiguous. I was confused by it. They ask a lot of questions. They don't answer them. I was just very frustrated rewatching this because the potential for a great story is there somewhere. It's a real shame. The hype to results ratio for this is astoundingly bad. This is a disaster of a story. It's got good production values, but I really, I said it before and I'll say it again. The story is a pyramid scheme. There's no payoff. There's a lot of corny horror movie stereotypes. I thought the acting was pretty mediocre across the board. And I actually have a Roger Ebert quote that I used for Alien 3 that I'm going to use here. Despite the fact that Roger Ebert actually gave this a four-star review, which is baffling to me, but whatever. Quote, this is one of the best-looking bad movies I have ever seen. It is a triumph of art direction and a disaster of screenwriting. And the eyes appreciate it more than the mind. Watching it in the moment, we are absorbed. After it's over, we are disappointed. Because what actually happens in the movie is so much less interesting than where it happens and how it looks while it's happening. End quote. I was going to initially give this a D, but after we just talked about it for 90 minutes, it's a D minus for me. There is no possibility of me ever watching this again. I find this movie idiotic. Mm. You can tell 20th Century Fox was unhappy with it because even though there was a sequel, it got a much looser connection, right? They tried to make it into much more of an alien movie and that ended up being a terrible movie before. And Anton, I was thinking about this. Between Hannibal, the Robin Hood version that he made, and this movie, that's three strikes against Ridley Scott. Like that's three stink bombs. But the man's but the man's put up some all time greats. Come on. That's now. the thing. He he made up for this sense because he made The Martian and The Last Duel, and I really am looking forward to Napoleon. And this got me thinking, Anton Noodle on this. Is Ridley Scott the most inconsistent filmmaker? Just by the track record of what we've gone over, it it's definitely up for conversation. The highs are as high as it gets, and the lows are pretty low. Pretty freaking yeah. Prometheus low. <laughs> <laughs> Anton, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful looking film. There's no getting around that. But at the end of the day, you have a lot more questions at the end than answers. And they're not fun questions. And they're very frustrating questions. And all around, there's just general sentiment of frustration and disappointment because of expectations that maybe it's on us to have made a lot of assumptions and expectations going into it. But I think that there was a lot of misdirection with the marketing materials to make us really think that this was going to be a proper alien prequel, or if anything connected to that in the least. This slightly hinted at a connection. But more than anything, it was just like winking at the audience with relics and homages to what actually true fans of the Alien series enjoyed. And if the film could have just properly embraced that and maybe focused more on proper storytelling versus trying to have just an intellectual powerhouse, then maybe the film could have 
actually done its job and be a good movie. But instead, it focused too much on trying to have a complex story, trying to have a quote-unquote fascinating character. And at the end of the day, it had no real semblance of a plot that made sense. And for me, a very disappointing experience watching this film. I want to end first by just saying that if for folks that were disappointed with this film, the sequel Covenant wasn't great, but you could see that there was a very clear course correction. There was much more uh, of embracing the Alien franchise. You get your proper xenomorphs. You really get a much more traditional horror feel. Um, It's also a bit gorier than Prometheus. But even in that sense, like it's not a better film. And in in fact, it's it's just disappointing because if there probably was more of a traditional embrace of what makes Alien great, you had everything. You had the blueprints. You had the map in Prometheus. But all it was was an invitation to a bad experience. So for me, the rating's a D. If they had to make a movie after this, which they did, to correct stuff in this movie or to like explain stuff, then you know it's a bad movie. Yeah. yeah, I don't really ever want to see another Alien movie at this point. There's, it has the series has such a low batting average. There's really only two good ones. Like that's it. It's true, but I don't know. Like again, it's we've talked about this. There's such hardcore fans for oh, yeah. this franchise. Well, and I'll, like I mean, we we haven't really touched on all of the films in this franchise because there's a lot, especially the crossover ones with uh, Predator. Pretty bad. I actually think Alien vs. Predator was better than this. Oh, I agree with that. But like the sequel to Alien vs. Predator, you ever see that one? I saw it on a plane, which doesn't really count. And I, I thought it, just, was, it was it was bad. They just blow up every character at the end? I don't even remember that. But We'll talk Wait, about this yeah, later. It probably says a lot. Wait, you saw yeah. it on a plane and it doesn't count? I, I was sort of paying attention, you know. Oh, man, I saw Schindler's List on the plane, and it was, like, the most compelling thing I've ever seen. You watch, Good. That's, that's the you chose to watch that on a plane? It was Damn. available. I, I mean, clearly. Okay, well. Well, it was either that or Avengers, and you'd already seen Avengers so many times. Right, naturally. <laughs> True. Well, I have a surprise for you guys. If you wanted more Alien content, they're apparently making a streaming series. Wow, I'm so... <laughs> just whatever about that do you think it'll have michael taskmaster in it well if uh michael fish angler is gonna be in it maybe we could see about taking a look well i think that's about it for prometheus uh taylor thank you so much for once again returning to the podcast thank you guys for having me it's always a pleasure taylor thank you so anton i'm really hoping the next film that we cover is better after the like the the, the atrocity that was Exorcist 2 followed up by this. We need a palate cleanser soon. A palate cleanser. A palate cleanser, the man says. Yeah, we need something. I, well, I, I have not rewatched the movie we're covering next week, So, but um, it is Halloween 2, the original Halloween 2, not the Rob Zombie one. But that right. is the episode that uh, listeners can expect to hear next week. Um, The plan is to actually release it on Halloween, which is a Tuesday. So you can expect that episode um, hopefully a day earlier than our normal release. But we thought Halloween 2 probably makes sense to release it um, not in November. Yep, that's fair. Not like a Treehouse of Horror special by The Simpsons, which typically releases in November. 
But with that, yes, Halloween 2. I think that will yeah. be a, a good palate cleanser. I think so. I have not seen it in a very, very long time, but I remember liking it. So okay. hopefully um, it holds up. Well, we, awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, that was, we'll, that's the episode. Yeah, we'll uh, see everyone next time on Why Wasn't It Better. And Taylor, once again, thank you for joining. Thank you, guys. Thank you.